0: Jonah chapter 3 and our assignment today in the scriptures is simply this doing justice preaching judgment would you say that with me doing justice preaching judgment say it one more time doing justice preaching judgment Jonah chapter 3 Jonah chapter 3, are, are you hearing music or is it just me? You're hearing music too? It's, so it's not just me? I, you know, I turned 50 this past year, so I, there are things now that I never used to question, but now I do. Am I, am I, am I hearing things? Maybe I am. <laughs> it sounds good though. Maybe it might lull us all to sleep along with the drone of my voice. Jonah chapter 3. <laughs> We're looking at verses 1 to 10 as uh, we continue in this series together. Uh, Jonah, a fugitive prophet, a fishy tale, and a faithful God. Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible here with you this morning, um, perhaps you can uh, just look on with someone near you. Um, you... Notice someone doesn't have a Bible? Maybe you'd share yours with them, or listen real close. Or, if you need a Bible, we'd be glad to uh, to get get one for you. Sorry for my hesitancy. I'm still hearing music. Are you still hearing music too? Is there someone at the piano playing? I'm just not seeing them. <laughs> I'm, I'm really deteriorating very quickly here. My hearing, my vision. <laughs> Jonah 3, that's better. I think it's gone now. I think it's gone. Thank you. Jonah 3, verses 1 to 10. Look at this uh, together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. How many of you are glad for second chances? New beginnings. And we serve a God who is so gracious in this way to all of us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And you're going to notice these first few verses sound almost duplicate to the first number of verses in chapter 1. And that is deliberately done by the author. That was the author's intent here. Because he wanted to emphasize, the, the, the Lord wants to emphasize to us the fact that he does give grace. He does give second chances. Great is his grace toward us that always chases us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, verse 3, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It's interesting that this emphasis is brought twice on the greatness of the city of, of Nineveh. And it, it, it's not really underscoring the size of Nineveh or, or its political uh, influence in, in the world at this time. The, the ancient Near East, what, what God is really wanting to bring out in emphasizing this is His heart toward Nineveh, toward cities, toward our communities. God has a great heart, and there was a very strategic heart that God had concerning Nineveh as there is a very strategic heart that He has concerning all of our communities, all of our cities. All of the places that we call home. And we're going we're to find out more about that when we get into chapter 4. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Look at this. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was like a heavy burlap type garment that was specifically used for the purposes of repentance, showing sign of humility and surrender and repentance. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them... To the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Again, a sign, a demonstration of repentance. And he issued a proclamation, the king did, and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king, and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, said the king. God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. So we see an amazing picture here of turning, of turning, of repentance, as it were, in in terms of a turnaround. Whether or not it was a full-blown spiritual repentance of heart, we're going to see. We're going to look into that a little bit here. But we see this amazing immediate picture from the king to the barnyard. Even the livestock, from the greatest to the least. Why do people repent? Jonah repented, as we saw in chapter 2. We looked at together the last couple weeks. He repented and survived in the belly of the fish. Of course, we've learned that it wasn't a full repentance for him. He was washed ashore. The fish vomited him up. And then Jonah went to Nineveh to preach as he was first instructed to do. The word of the Lord comes a second time to him as we're looking at today. He traveled into the city. He began to preach. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And to Jonah's shock and amazement, the people neither laughed at him nor laid a hand on him. Instead, the entire city immediately responds well huh, do you know how many preachers would die for this every every <laughs> immediate response because this is this is the desire of every every preacher of the lord man or woman it's not that 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 they receive any kind of accolades of, well, wow, that was a really nice message, Pastor. That was great. Wonderful. Nice try, Pastor. Maybe better luck next time. It, 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 it's not that we're looking for it. It's that we want a people that when they leave after hearing the word of the Lord, they say, what can I do now to live this? How can change come into my life? And Jonah experiences this immediate response. The, the Hebrew word that's used here numerous times for repent means to turn back in heart and in mind and in living. And it occurs four times in verses 8 to 10. And that is striking it's the central message of this passage. Turning. A turning. A returning to the Lord. It, it, it's the emphasis here against all expectations. The powerful, violent city of Nineveh puts on sackcloth a sign of mass repentance. And they did so from the greatest of them to the least of them. Every strata of their society, from the top to the bottom of the social spectrum. Even their livestock participated in this somehow. This is, in some measure, a glimpse for us of of what true biblical citywide revival looks like. It's a glimpse. Is it full blown? We're going to see, but it's a glimpse. We're getting a, an idea here of what it could look like. How could this have happened? We've been looking at Assyria and, and the, the nature of Assyria and Nineveh and, and the kind of culture this was and the violence and the, the onslaught and all of that in weeks past. And if you don't recall, I encourage you to go back and, and listen again Uh, to those times together we shared studying this story. And now we're seeing this, what appears to be, a turning. And it's immediate, the response. It's, It's not like when Moses approached Pharaoh and he had to go back again and again. This is an immediate response here. Historians have pointed out that about the time of Jonah's mission here in this story, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, of plagues, of revolts, and eclipses, all of which were seen to them as omens, as harbingers of far worse things to come. Some have argued that this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah to then go and preach. This state of affairs would have made both rulers and subjects unusually attuned to the message of a visiting prophet. So there was some sociological explanation for this immediate response that we see. And while such a significant movement toward God always does have social aspects connected to it, since we are embodied spiritual beings who live in particular places and cultures and historical times, nevertheless, such factors cannot wholly and completely Explain or account for this kind of repentance. In other words, there may have been these sociological things happening the famines, the revolts, all of these things, and, and they may have helped to contribute, but we can't hang everything on those factors. Nineveh, with its holy warlike orientation, accuses itself of violence in verse 8. Nineveh, proud of its power and its invincibility, ceases to be itself when it humbles itself. What is going on here for Nineveh? They're, They're having a crisis of identity. Or something? What, how are we to understand this? Is, is this genuine, all-out, full-blown repentance before the Lord? What's going on? Let's jump a little ahead in time and look at a more modern scenario in comparison and contrast to this to help us get an idea. In 1907 a revival broke out at a Bible conference in Pyongyang, which is now the capital, as we know, of North Korea. Those attending the conference came under deep conviction of sin, especially when the preacher called them to repent of their historic, traditional hatred toward the Japanese. Of course, the Korean Christians had accepted the fundamental truths of the gospel of grace. And yet, these truths of grace had not sunk in deeply enough for them to forgive the Japanese. They felt morally superior to a nation they saw as oppressive and cruel. Are you seeing some of the similarities here with Jonah and Assyria, Israel and Assyria? In light of the gospel, however, the Koreans at the conference saw that they stood before God as equally sinful and condemned with all the human beings yet rescued and redeemed by the sheer and costly grace of Christ. So this drained away all their pride. All their prejudice. All their hatred. All their resentment and their bitterness was being rinsed away as the Spirit of God was moving among them. It's an amazing story. They returned to their homes with a new willingness to repent of wrongdoing. People went house to house, repairing and reconciling relationships and returning stolen articles. Can you imagine this? Going house to house. Can you imagine if this happened here in the Tri-Cities? And we all start going house to house, repairing broken relationships with our neighbors. You know, that day we yelled at them over the fence because we didn't like the way their dog barked or whatever, whatever the issue was. Things may be stolen, we return. This is what's going on. They literally went house to house doing this. The worship services were filled with new power. The Holy Spirit was moving freely and fully in radical transformation. This was not some mere growth by transfer as we are familiar with today in the name of revival. You know, where a bunch of them left one church, went to another church, and that church claimed growth and revival was happening. Was (laughs) revival really happening? No, the sheep were just recycling themselves. The recycling of the saints. This isn't what was going on here in Korea. This was full-blown, genuine transformation that was happening. Rather, the the result was explosive newborn growth of the church. Newborn salvations were happening. People being reborn spiritually into the kingdom of God. The Methodist church, for example, doubled its membership size in a single year. Not because of transfer, but newborn souls into the kingdom. There have been many such spiritual movements across the world in the history of the church. How do we explain such phenomena? Many have pointed out that the Japanese-Korean pacts of 1904 and 1907 imposed Japanese rule of the country. Did this social-political background open hearts? make the hearts of many Koreans tender and prepared and receptive, preparing their hearts to receive a gospel message that offered resources for addressing such things, such as hatred, ethnic hatred, and for repenting and offering forgiveness and so on? Yes, but can such factors fully explain what happened? Uh, No doubt somehow these things contributed and the Lord used them, but was it all due to that? Of course not. Because, as I said, these conditions occur constantly in the world and they do not have results such as these as I've just outlined in this story of when the Spirit's fire blazed through korea beloved repentance and true revival is always 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 a work of god and god alone i'll say it again repentance and true revival full blown repentance and true fide revival is always, always, always a work of God. Read this passage with me, will you, that Paul speaks to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy. It's on the screen here for us. Read it together nice and loud if you can. Repentance and true revival is always a work of God. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, changing those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Are are you seeing here the the partnership that we have? We are instructed as servants of the Lord, sons and daughters of the Lord, to be a people that demonstrate the kindness of the Lord, the grace of the Lord with one another. We're, We're not to be a quarrelsome type. We're not to be an argumentative type. That's not the demeanor and the disposition that we are to have. We're not out there looking to prove the existence of God to everyone on the street and getting into heated hot arguments with them about it and debate and everything else. No, God says, instead, be a people that live in my grace and demonstrate my kindness and my goodness to the world. And as you do that, perhaps... Paul says to Timothy, perhaps God will cause those individuals to see the light and grant them repentance. You see, repentance is a gift of God. It's, what, does, what does Paul say in, in, in another letter? It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's not how good an argument I can create. It's not how well I can debate the existence of God. Yes, we ought to study to show ourselves approved, as Paul says to to Timothy as well. But when it comes to being salt, light, and leaven to the world, being agents of His kingdom, we are to be people that are not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. We're to have a teachable spirit about us. Patient with difficult people. you ever meet those people? <laughs> oh, good, I'm not the only one. Patient with difficult people. Some of you have difficult neighbors. You have difficult co workers. You have a difficult boss. You have a difficult spouse. Be patient. Be Kind, be, this, is, this is the demeanor we are to have. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Gently. Don't get in some hot debate with them. Don't get into some meaningless argument with them. Gently, Paul says, and perhaps God will grant them repentance, changing those people's hearts. This is powerful for us. You see, repentance and true revival are always a work of God. We are to be faithful to be who we are called to be as the people of God, as people of the Spirit, as the Messiah people who live according to the Messiah way of life. And as we do... Paul is telling us God works through that grace upon us and and seeks to bring a turning. A turning of the spiritual climate. A turning of the atmosphere. A turning of hearts. Repentance. A work of God. This is what we see happening. Or at least the beginnings of it in our passage today. As Jonah preaches, and he preaches justice, he he preaches the, 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 the judgment of the Lord, the Lord who judges the state and affair of things. But let's not be too quick to completely liken Nineveh's turning to the revival's of modern church history, the revivals that I just brought to our attention, the revival in korea let 's not be too quick to say this was that because while the text before us today does say they believed God in verse five, they believed God and and and, and the people of Nineveh believed god uh, Jonah preaches he He says, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. There was this immediate... They did come to be better people in that moment. There's no indication, however, that the Ninevites came into a loyal, love, covenant relationship with the God of Israel. How many see the difference? Things changed... Things became better, at least for the time being. But there's no indication here to us really that the Ninevites came into a loyal love covenant relationship with the God of Israel. For example, the word that the Ninevites use when they say God, perhaps God will have a change of heart, a change... When they use that... term, It's the generic word Elohim. Elohim. Elohim is the generic name of God rather than using the personal covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. That may not seem like a big deal, but it's very significant. Yahweh, that's the name the Lord uses with His people. In this case, His people Israel. There's no mention of the residents of Nineveh forsaking their gods and their idols. They did not offer sacrifices to the Lord. Nor was there any rite of circumcision that was carried out. So, what was really happening here then? What, what was really going on? The king of Nineveh understood God to be saying that each citizen of the city must everyone, verse 8, everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Violence. Violence is the arbitrary infringement of human rights. Of such social injustice, Nineveh was blatantly guilty, as we've looked at in weeks past. Assyrian imperialism and cruelty and social injustice were condemned by other Hebrew prophets as well as Jonah. Isaiah condemned it. Nahum condemned it. You can look at Isaiah 10. You can look at Nahum chapter 3. And and so this call to repent of oppression and injustice, it fits. It fits with the messages of other biblical prophets in the relatively few times they spoke to the pagan nations. Because remember, it was exceptional that a prophet of the Lord would leave his country and go to a pagan nation to prophesy something to that pagan nation usually the prophets of the Lord were prophesying to God's own people. In Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, the prophet Amos denounced Israel's neighbors for their imperialism, their cruelty, their violence, their oppression of the weak. In the Old Testament, where an Israelite addresses pagan nations... The condemnation is typically targeted at their moral and social weakness. Usually, when a prophet of the Lord speaks to a pagan nation, he's speaking targeting their moral and social wickedness. And this is what Jonah did as well. His message to Nineveh focused on the city's social practices. It focused on their what they did. You look at verse 10, you see it again. When God saw what they did, God had seen what they'd been doing, and He was very disturbed. And now He sees what they do again. And the call was to change their evil ways in verse 4. As we've seen, the Assyrian Empire was unusually violent. It slaughtered and enslaved countless people and oppressed the poor. It was renowned for its injustice, its imperialism, and oppression of other countries. Yet the text here shows that the impulse toward exploitation of, uh, uh, and, and abuse and dehumanization was also eating away at the fabric of Nineveh's own society. It wasn't just affecting the other nations that they were taking advantage of. It was affecting their own social culture. It wasn't merely that the Assyrians, as a nation, were oppressing other nations, but individuals were violent toward one another. As Ninevites, poisoning social relationships. Beloved, it was a toxic society, Nineveh was. Unlike any we can possibly even imagine, And so God says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands that he plans to carry out toward others. Toward their own neighbors. Not just toward other countries, but toward their own neighbors. The wealthy enslave the poor while the poor strike back through crime and middle class people cheat one another. This was going on. Many of our our societies here in North... We can relate with this to some degree. It may be that the repentance from the greater of them to the least of them shows the beginning of a reconciliation of the various strata of their society. Many biblical scholars suggest that the narrative here simply gives us a summarized statement of Jonah's message to Nineveh, which was a bare thread in verse 4. All we have is that Jonah preached in verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Was that Jonah's whole sermon? Was that his whole message? Probably not. We're, we're just given an aspect of it many of you read that and say boy I wish pastor would just preach that just one sentence and we'd all be done and could go home hallelujah praise god we're just giving a glimpse here of Jonah's message a summary It's reasonable then to infer that he actually gave them more information about God than is mentioned in the story and in the text here. In fact, that is almost certainly true. They did, for example, turn to God in the hope that he would hear them. This makes it likely that at least they questioned Jonah to find out if there was any way and any hope of God's forgiveness. Nonetheless, the biblical narrative does not tell us that God sent Jonah with the purpose of converting the populace into a saving covenant relationship with him. We we don't see that as being God's purpose here. The narrative tells us that Jonah went to address these ways of the Assyrians, their violence, their disposition toward abuse and dehumanization and imperialism and all of this and the way it was destructive and took advantage of people. God said to Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to speak against that. It wasn't about saving covenant relationship with him. He was to warn them about their evil, their violent behavior, and the inevitable consequences if they did not relent and change. And while we know from the rest of the Bible that the changing social behavior of a a people is, is not sufficient for salvation and that God cannot give final forgiveness without faith and without atoning sacrifice. We know that from the greater story of the Scriptures, the greater redemptive story of the Bible. Even so, God's response is instructive here. Though the people of Nineveh do not forsake their idols... And they do not turn to Yahweh, not Elohim, the impersonal name of God. They didn't turn to Yahweh. They still refer to Him as Elohim. They don't sacrifice to God. Even though all of these things don't appear to be happening as the story tells us, Or would tell us God in His mercy relents from His threat to overthrow the city or allow the city to overthrow itself. Isn't that interesting? These people, they did not, they didn't turn to God. They didn't, they didn't get rid of all their idolatry and their 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 pagan worship and all of that there there was a change and there was a turning of some measure they turned from their ways and 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 the disposition of evil and destruction and violence they turned from that and and they repented in that measure and to that regard though it wasn't a full-blown turning to Yahweh, and even still, God has mercy. For the time being, He expresses favor and He expresses patience in response to the city's intention and effort at social reform. You see, beloved, God is not willing that any should perish. He is so patient. He is so long-suffering. Are you seeing this? We're not seeing a full-blown turning here to the Lord as Yahweh. We are seeing some measure of change and turning away from the ways and the practices that this Assyrian group of people had given themselves to. And, And that was what God was dealing with. He said, Jonah, you go and you address that. And you let them know that this is what's going to happen. That the fruit of their own behavior and actions is going to come back to bite them. God has mercy. He has patience with them for the time being. We learn later on about Nineveh that Nineveh does eventually destroy itself even after the story of Jonah. But for now, God is dealing with them. God is reaching out to them. God is approaching them, chasing them with his grace, as he does all of us. And he is so patient with them, so patient with us. Aren't you grateful for the patience of the Lord? Hello? He is so patient with me. He is so long-suffering with me. You know what I'm learning about the Lord more and more in these days is is He is kinder with me than I even am with myself. His grace, His mercy, His patience, His long-suffering... And this is what we're seeing here with the Assyrian people. For the time being, God expresses favor and patience in response to the city's intention and effort at social reform. And that's what it was. It was social reform. It wasn't a spiritual climate change that's taking place here as described in what happened with Korea. So what, so what what do we do with this? What are we to to make of this? What posture ought we to possess? well and 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 I'm going to wrap up with this today. Let's focus for a moment on the statement of the King of Nineveh that we see in verse nine. Would you look at it again with me? The king of Nineveh says, "Who knows? Would you say that with me? Who knows? Who knows?" God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, bear in mind, this king was not a theologian. He had literally no knowledge of Yahweh whatsoever. He was a pagan worshiper. Of pagan gods. He was a polytheistic pagan worshiper. Many gods, many idols. He had literally no knowledge of Yahweh. He was not in any kind of theological straitjacket here. Even so, again we see that sometimes God can very effectively use a pagan, non-theological mind to show us something of his mind and his ways, especially when theologians or theologically minded Christians are so arrogant that he cannot break through to them. God's wanting to show Jonah something here. Through the king of Nineveh again, just as he did through the, the seamen on the ship, who demonstrated more in kind the ways of the Lord than Jonah was demonstrating as the prophet of the Lord. Often our problem is that we don't like this king. We don't say, who knows? Who can tell? Because we think we already know. We think we've got it all down and figured out. It's all laid out, cut and dried with us. We presume to already know everything about God. But this king, this pagan king who had no knowledge at all of Yahweh, what does he say? What's his posture? What's his response before the Lord? He empties himself like a child. He didn't have God all figured out. Beloved, Brothers and sisters, are we so proud? Are we so sophisticated that we presume to know in advance what God is going to do? Have we got him all nice and neatly figured out and packaged in our tidy little theological box? Wrapped up with a nice little bow? Who can tell? Will God save your neighbor next door? Who knows? Of course we pray to that end. Of course, we intercede. Of course, we demonstrate, as we were looking at a moment ago, a lifestyle of grace and kindness and not argumentative and being gentle and all of, of course we give ourselves, but will God save our neighbor? Who knows? I don't know. And you don't really know. We're hoping for that. We're believing for that. We're trusting God in faith. But really at the end of the day, only God knows. Hello. He may reveal things to us that would give us a good confidence of what might take place. But we will never have Him all figured out. Because if we did, He would not be God. Will God save your husband or your wife? Who can tell? Will God save your best friend? Who knows? Can you tell? Or do you know it all? We seem only to think with one closed dimension in our outlook. Consider the man who was walking north towards the Yukon. That is, he thought he was going north but he was on a train which was going south. So which way was he going? North or south? But wait a minute. While he was walking north, going south, the earth was rotating in an easterly direction every 24 hours. Which way was he heading? Further, all this time the earth is rotating, it is in an orbit going around the sun, so, in what direction is he going now? And even while the earth is orbiting around the sun, it is regularly tilting a little bit, making summer, autumn, winter, spring. So, now in which direction is he going? But there's more. The sun is supposed to, to, be, to, to, to be the center of our universe But we may be part of a galaxy that is moving and expanding in vast regions of the infinite. So in what direction are we going? I think you get my point. Paul puts it this way. Oh, how great are God's riches and his wisdom and his knowledge. Would you read it together with me? It's on the screen. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and His ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who can know enough to give Him advice? For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Beloved, we should take such great encouragement in this because it tells us that it's not all up to us. We are to give ourselves as His faithful children to be all that He's called us to be. But His ways are greater than our ways. We think it should be this way because we think we've got God figured out pretty good. God's ways are higher than that. His thoughts are greater. I mean, who of you in the... Can any of us in the room give God advice? if we're honest, we've tried. Beloved, let's follow the example of the king of Nineveh. This pagan king. The king was a wise man. He was pagan, but he was wise. He was a wise man. He feared God, at least enough to carry out this social reform that we're reading about in this passage he was like a child who can tell he says who knows God may turn and relent God's judgments are past finding out yet most of us don't get beyond the man walking north going south on a train we consider just one or two options, and there are so many more ways of thinking that are beyond our comprehension. Hello. God is determined that we do not know everything. <laughs> I'm going to let that sink in because the reality of that needs to dawn on, on us. He is determined that we do not know everything. Hello? Just turn to the person beside you, maybe poke them and wake them up and say, you don't know everything. Now, come on. Some of you have been waiting all week to say this to the person beside you. God is determined. We do not know everything. His judgments are past finding out. God, beloved, the sooner we come to to be settled with this in our hearts and minds, the better. Because God is not meant to be fully understood. There is a mystery about his majesty and his superiority and his supremacy. And if there wasn't such mystery, He would not be God. He is meant to be worshipped. He's not meant to be fully understood. He is meant to be worshipped and trusted. When we cease to wonder, we cease to worship. When we cease to wonder at the mystery of God and who He is and His ways, Isaiah said, to whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble Him? Who can tell what God will do? Can you? We discern. We can come to some understandings. But even with that, we must not become proud and arrogant We must acknowledge the fact and the truth and the reality that at the end of the day, only God really knows. And we are called to worship Him and to trust Him. Because we do know this God always knows best. Always knows best. The last verse of our passage today, we see a turning of the Lord. And God relented, the text says. And he turned from what he was going to do and instead granted grace. Does God change his mind? It's a good question. We're going to look at that in the coming days. Would you stand together with me as Philip and the team come? In the stillness of this moment before the Lord, the Holy Spirit is speaking and has been speaking to us. Holy Spirit, would you help us to have ears to hear what you are seeking to say to us in our lives. Would you show us what this is to look like, how this Word is to take on flesh, to be incarnated in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our thinking, in the way we live.